Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan uh, and Guhe, for that. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed the flowers in his hair. That was a really good costuming choice, I thought. So uh, again, welcome to, to summer at Catalyst. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time today, we are spending the summer working through last year's uh, smash hit family movie Encanto, which is about a, a magical family that has all of these amazing powers. And we, ha we noticed that uh, the various members of La Familia Madrigal all uh, uh, correlate really interestingly with a spiritual formation tool called the Enneagram. And so today we're talking about Enneagram Ones uh, and the member of La Familia Madrigal, Isabella. Uh, Isabella is the perfect daughter. In fact, when she is first introduced by Mirabelle in that big opening number, La Familia Madrigal, Mirabelle says this, uh, my older sisters Isabella and Luisa, one strong, one graceful, that's uh, Isabella, right? Uh, perfect in every way. Isabella grows a flower and the town grows wild. Isabella, she's a perfect golden child. Okay, that's, that's Isabella. She's tall, slender, beautiful. Uh, everything she does is perfect, right? She's, she's the model child, and she's even engaged to someone in the village, that is, and, and we're told this is going to be very good for the future, not just of the two of them, but of the whole village. She's perfect. Uh, she has it all. She can do it all. And it's no wonder that her little sister Mirabelle loves her, right? Uh, uh, and it's also, though, no wonder that her little sister is a little bit envious of her because she has the spotlight and the love of the family in a way that Mirabelle never has and doesn't think she ever will. Uh, now, again, I'm willing to bet that uh, there are those of us in here who know someone like that, right? Uh, the, the golden child or the straight A student or the star employee or the model citizen, right? That person who just seems to have it all together. Uh, they're really good at what they do. They have this almost ruthless standard of perfection and, uh, and everyone knows it, right? And if we were being really honest and they were not within earshot, we, we might say they were a little bit judgy, Okay, not that they're wrong, right? But they could just, they could be harsh, okay? They could be overly critical sometimes. And that can make it hard, uh, hard to engage with them, hard to love them, hard to work with them, right? This is an Enneagram One. And if you know Enneagram Ones that are healthy, then what you know about them is that they are just an incredibly powerful force. They're amazing leaders. They're they're really indispensable to have on a team. Their standard of excellence is unparalleled. They're really hard workers. And again, when they're healthy, they can be really inspiring to everyone around them. Um, here's the thing, though. If you are an Enneagram One, here's what people don't know about you. The reason you are that way is because you have this absolutely relentless critic who lives in your head and who is constantly telling you how you do not measure up. That's why you work so hard. That's why you try so hard. That's why your standards are so high. Because you are being driven relentlessly by this unsleeping, unceasing inner voice that is constantly telling you how you fall short of perfection. So as we look at Enneagram 1s today, we're going to do the same thing with Enneagram 1s that we've done with all of the other numbers so far. We're going to ask, if I am an Enneagram 1, 
What does it look like for me to be healthy and to flourish? What does it look like for me to silence the voice of that inner critic and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like for me to find the freedom that God offers me so that I can become the person that God created me to be? And for all of the rest of us who are not Enneagram ones, including me, right? I keep telling you I'm a three, right? So the rest of us who are not Enneagram ones, how do we be good friends to them? Good fellow church people with them, good partners or good parents or whatever, right? How do we care for and love these ones such that we become a community that enables them to flourish, right? Because we, uh, what we find in these Enneagram ones is a picture of God's beauty and God's excellence. We find in them um, the God who really does care, uh, that things are their best, or the, the way they were created to be. And when ones are at your healthiest, you help us see that. And so uh, we're going to begin this morning in worship uh, by celebrating this God. And again, if you're a guest with us, whether you're joining us online or whether you're joining us in person, uh, I hope you uh, prepared for communion. So if you're in person, hopefully you grab one of the communion cups on the way in. If you're a guest, uh, then you can just grab some elements at home so that you'll be ready to receive communion with us in a little bit. Uh, and then again, we just want you to feel welcome. The only thing we're going to ask of you as a guest today is that you be open to hear uh, what God has for you, because we believe that God is here with us. We believe that God has gathered us all together and that God is speaking. And so we want to, we want to be ready to listen. And so that, that's all we ask of you as a guest. Um, now, again, as I mentioned, as you already have seen, our worship team is, is off this week, out of town and on break. And so uh, we're, our worship team, if you're in person, is going to be on the screen with our lovely and inexplicable Instagram filter on it. We don't know what's going on. We're going to try to fix that over the weekend, um, right? But we don't know what's going on. So and online, you're like, what are you talking about? Everything looks great. You're right. It does. Thank you. So this summer, we are working through uh, two, two things together, as I mentioned earlier. We're working through the, the smash hit movie Encanto, but we're also working through a spiritual formation tool called the Enneagram. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it presents sort of initially like a personality profile, like Myers-Briggs or StrengthsFinder or one of those uh, where in the Enneagram there are nine numbers, and everyone is one of the nine numbers. And you're not sometimes a three and sometimes a seven or something like you're At your core, you're one of these numbers. And the numbers represent what theologians and mystics call your shadow self. Okay, It's a persona that we cultivate, usually in response to messaging we receive when we're young. And the persona is designed to protect our authentic self, our true self, the self that God created and loves, uh, from the rest of the world. And so uh, the difference between Enneagram and a personality profile like Myers-Briggs is that while the personality profiles tell you who you really are, the Enneagram is meant to diagnose who we're really not. Okay, so when, for instance, when I found out that I'm a three, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm supposed to try really hard to be a three and lean into all the three things and be the threeest three I can be. It means that the three persona, the, the performer persona that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, is actually a persona that I've developed to protect my authentic self. And what I actually need to do is, is uh, work you know, with my spiritual community and with the Holy Spirit to heal that trauma that, I, that I've experienced so that I can be less of a three, so that I can be more integrated and whole, and so that rather than showing the world my three persona, I can show the world my true authentic self that I hide behind the, the shadow self. 
Um, so th that's the idea of the Enneagram. The goal is transformation. The goal is spiritual wholeness. It's, it's uncovering who God created me to be and then allowing the Holy Spirit to heal me and to bring me to life in a way that I uh, transcend my Enneagram number, right? And, uh, you know, that, that's all pretty heady and, and can be complicated. And so we thought, well, you know, let's use a Disney movie. Right? So we went to Encanto, which was a smash hit movie. It's a terrific film. And uh, again, a lot of people noticed that it seemed that all of the, the magical madrigals uh, correlated really well with different numbers of the Enneagram. And so we started kind of trying to piece them together, and we thought, you know, we can make this work. So, so what we're doing is using the various characters in the movie Encanto to help us understand these Enneagram types, not just understand them, but then also understand how they heal, how they grow, and then also, for those of us who aren't that number, how we love them. Because obviously, since you're only one number, only one of these nine weeks is going to apply specifically to you. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if you were an eight, you just check out for the whole rest of the time because we started with eights, right? It means that we learn who all the numbers are because we're all different and we're all called into the same community. And so by learning, uh, for instance, who eights are when I'm not an eight, helps me to love the people in our congregation, in my life, in our world, who are eights. It helps me love them better. It helps me be a better, more faith-filled part of their own spiritual transformation. So the goal here is empathy and community and transformation. So we are in the first triad of the Enneagram. It's, it's divided into three groups. So eights, nines, and ones are together in what's called the anger triad. Uh, then we'll do twos, threes, and fours next in the shame triad. And then we'll do five, sixes, and sevens last in the fear triad. Um, the anger triad is called the anger triad because all three of these numbers engage in some way with the core emotion of anger. So we began with eights, with abuela, the challengers. Those are the people that externalize their anger, right? They put their anger out on the world. So they create this hard, crusty shell um, that protects their soft, vulnerable interior. Uh, nines avoid anger, right? They, they stuff, 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 and work really hard to not feel their own feelings. Like Mirabelle, who was constantly saying, it's not about me, it's not about me, is the family okay, look at the family, and ignoring what she really wanted deep down. Okay, the, the last group that we're meeting, the, the ones, the perfectionists, are the ones who internalize their anger, right? They point their anger inward at themselves through the voice of that inner critic. Um, and this is why ones uh, appear to be so together and so perfect, because, uh, because of this inner critic, because of this voice. Uh, again, much like nines, ones don't read initially as angry, and again, think if you've seen Encanto, think about Isabella, right? The, the perfect golden child who is just in so many ways seems like she is the ideal. Everything she makes are these beautiful flowers and her, you know, her room that, that mirrors her personality is just this gorgeous array of beauty. And it, it all stays that way until her little sister Mirabelle disrupts the plans for her engagement to this guy in town that her grandma really wants her to marry, but it turns out she doesn't really actually have any interest in marrying. She was going to do that because that's what the family wanted, right? That was what was expected of her. That was the rule that she had been given. So she was going to do it, not because it was what she wanted, but because it was what was expected of her. And she's who? She's the perfect child. So of course she's going to do what's expected of her. Mirabelle finds that out, disrupts it, and she thinks that her sister is going to be happy about this, right? She saved her from a loveless marriage. But instead, Isabella erupts in anger. And here's what she says. 
Right? She says, I've been stuck being perfect my whole entire life. I never wanted to marry him. I was doing it for the family. And she erupts in anger at her sister. And that's when she creates that lumpy cactus that we'll talk more about in a minute, right? But this is, it's surprising when we see this core of anger in Isabella. It's surprising when we realize that she's mad, not at Abuela, who wanted her to marry this guy that she didn't love. She's mad at her sister, Mirabelle, for disrupting everything. Why? Well, because her whole life, Isabella has done what everyone expects of her. She's followed all the rules, and Mirabelle doesn't, right? <laughs> Mirabelle is constantly uh, circumventing what the family wants, going around, trying to, trying to sneak, because she's trying to make everyone happy, and when she realizes everyone isn't happy, she's, you know, getting in the middle of everything. And it just enrages Isabella that her little sister won't play by the rules, because Isabella has been her whole life. This is a textbook one. Okay, ones live in a world of rules, okay? Some of the rules are explicit, some of them are implicit, things that ones just sort of picked up along the way. But for, the, for a one, the entire world is categorized into do's and don'ts, okay? The, the overarching word that rules a one's life is the word should. I should do this, I should do that. You should do this, you should do that. Ones live their life by what I should do, not what I want to do, not what I need to do, not even what it's good to do, but what I should be doing. Okay? That's, that's what a one's life is ruled by. Okay? So how do you know if you're a one? Well, I, I, like we've been doing for the other ones, I want to read, um, read the examples of what a, an average one sounds like and then an unhealthy one, and then, you know, save a little bit of good news for the end, what a, what a one sounds like when they're really healthy. So, so here's, here's what an average one sounds like, okay? Average ones have judging and comparing minds that naturally spot errors and imperfections. Uh, terrific proofreaders, okay? Seriously, all right? They struggle to accept that imperfection is inevitable while fearing the tyranny of that critical voice in their head. Okay, that's an average one, right? Unhealthy ones... Unhealthy ones fixate on small imperfections. These ones are obsessed with micromanaging what they can. Asserting control over something or someone is their only relief. That's, a, that's an unhealthy one, okay? Now again, some of you are cringing inside right now. You feel like a spotlight has been shined on you or like we snuck in and copied your journal at night. Relax, take a deep breath. That is your shadow self trying to wiggle out of the light because your persona is being exposed. And that's actually a good thing. Okay, so just deep breath. And again, it's not all bad. Like I said earlier, ones are some of my favorite people. Here's why. Here's what a healthy one looks like. Healthy ones are committed to a life of service and integrity. They are balanced and responsible and able to forgive themselves and others for being imperfect. They are principled but patient with the process that slowly but surely makes the world a better place. That's like a pretty good person, huh? Yeah, that's a healthy one. Ones, that's why we need you to be healthy. Okay, you, you play a vital role in our congregational ecosystem, in our community ecosystem. We need you, and we need you to be the person that God created you to be and calls you to be. So where does that begin? It begins with this. Ones, I need you to hear this. It's going to be difficult for you to hear, okay? I just need you to, you're not, what I mean difficult, it's going to be hard for you to believe, okay? We're, we're starting, we're going to go through this. Perfection is not a state in which you exist, Okay, you treat, you treat perfection like a light switch. You're either on or off, right? You've either got it or you don't. 
Perfection is not a state in which you exist. Perfection is a process that we are a part of. We are becoming perfect. Uh, Maybe even better said, we are becoming perfected. It's not a state that you achieve. That's why at the the bottom of healthy ones, it said that the world is becoming perfect a little bit at a time, and healthy ones are, are okay with that, right? Perfection is not a state that we exist in. It's a process that we're a part of. Okay, and I'm going to show you this uh, in, in Scripture. Okay, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, and if you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, you can find Hebrews 5 on page 729. And if you don't own a Bible, keep that, consider that a gift from us. Uh, now, as you're turning over to Hebrews 5, uh, this is a sermon that was preached in the early church. And, and uh, we're in the middle of a long, interesting, and complicated argument about why Jesus is the fulfillment of, of God's promises to the Jewish people. Okay, it's, uh, Hebrews is a great book. We should maybe just preach through it sometime and do a Bible study. But, but for now, uh, for now uh, what I want to focus on here is that Christians talk about Jesus being perfect. Right? We say Jesus is perfect. And ones, you have like a, a love-hate relationship with that, right? On the one hand, we're like, Jesus is perfect. Yes, like sounds like my kind of guy, right? On the other hand, you're also like, Ugh, okay, I'll never measure up. Right? The inner critic's like, not so fast, my friend. Right? You're, not, you're not ever going to be as good as Jesus. And so it becomes this sort of like push-pull, this like victory-defeat sort of a thing. But what you'll see in Hebrews is that Jesus became perfected. That it was actually through the course of his life that he became perfect, or as, as the scripture says here, that he was made perfect. Okay, Jesus even did not experience perfection as a, as a sort of like on or off state, as a binary. Jesus was engaged in a process of being perfected. Okay, so I want to read this scripture with you, and then I want to talk about why, how, like, how can we say that, okay? Because it sounds like we're edging into heresy territory, right? Okay, so here, here's, uh, here, here's uh, verses 8 and 9, and this is from the New Revised Standard Version because it actually captures the Greek better than uh, what we usually use, which is the New Living Translation. So, uh, the preacher in Hebrews tells us that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And here it is. And having been made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Do you hear that? Right? After Jesus had been made perfect was when he became the source of salvation. Okay? Now, what this does not mean is that Jesus was like, a gang leader doing drive-bys and dealing dope and stuff like that, and then he, like, became perfect, okay? That's not what it means. In the ancient world, perfection was a state that you attained. It was something that had to be filled up or completed. Uh, whereas this is not how we think of it, right? We think of it more as, like, you started 100, and if anything happens, you drop below 100, then that's bad, and you're not perfect anymore. Right? And that's just not how the ancient world thought of it. In the ancient world, perfection is something that is finished by the end of a process. So some, uh, like, you know, when you, when you cook a perfect meal, right? You can't say at the beginning of the process, oh, look at my perfect meal, when it's just a bunch of ingredients spread out on a counter. It's not perfect, right? It could be, it might be, hopefully it will be, but it's not right now, because you actually have to go through the process of cooking to make a perfect meal. Well, this is, this is the kind of concept that the preacher in Hebrews is applying to Jesus. He's saying it's actually all of the things that Jesus experienced in his life and the way that he responded to them that made him perfect. He was not the person who could suffer for the sin of humanity when he was born as a baby, okay? 
He had to live his life and go through his life and respond the way he did and be faithful the way he was in order to become the person who could fulfill God's plan. The ones, if Jesus had to be perfected, you also have to be perfected. Okay? Perfection is not a state that you can just try hard enough and attain. It's something that God has to do in you. I'm going to say that again. Perfection is not something you can just work hard enough to attain. It's not something you can just be. It's something that God has to do in you. And if this is something that ones miss, okay? When, you, when your kids, uh, the message that ones received was that in order to be loved, you have to behave. That you won't be loved unless you behave. That you have to be good enough to be loved. And so that's why ones turn into ones, right? Where they adopt this persona of, I'm, uh, I have to try really hard, and if I work hard enough, then, then I'll be good enough to be loved. And so ones, your, your, uh, your healing journey is being able to let go of that. Let go of all the shoulds in your life so that you can just be, and what I mean by just be is just be loved. You just accept that God loves you as you are. And if you can do that, that's when the real good stuff starts. And again, I want to go back to Isabella in Encanto, right? It's not until she finally, to uh, jump Disney movies, lets it go, right? And accidentally creates this weird lumpy little cactus that she goes, whoa, what else could I do? What else could I do if I were not trapped in this cycle of just should all the time? In fact, uh, in the song, right, she says, I'm sick of pretty, I just want something true. That's a one right there. You work so hard to do all the should to create this beautiful, perfect facade that you don't have time for the things that are true about you, the things that are true about your neighbors, even for the things that are true about God. But ones, if you can get past that, if you can accept that your life is not ruled by should, but is instead ruled by God's love for you, that's what unlocks some truly magical stuff. And so I want to pause there. I want to go back into worship because I want us to sit with that. I want us to sit with this reality. I just don't think we can sit with it enough, honestly, that the first thing that is true about us is not that we have to behave. It's that God sees us and that God loves us. So uh, again, wherever you are, would you stand with me as we turn it back over to the worship team? Uh, so what does it look like, ones, uh, what does it look like to let go of this drive for perfectionism and to really rest into the Spirit? Uh, well, uh, I think, the, again, the first thing that comes with this acknowledgement, right, that, that this drive for perfection can actually disrupt God's work in you. That by, by trying to do it myself, what I'm actually doing is then taking, taking the work away from God and keeping God then from being able to do the work that belongs to God in the first place. So in uh, Philippians 1, this is actually in the prayer at the beginning of Philippians. It's not even like part of what Paul is you know, like instructing them about in his letter. Just in the prayer at the beginning, he says this. I think it's, it's such a beautiful and profound verse in verse 6. Paul says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished 
on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So that, that idea that, that God is finishing the work in you, that's that God is perfecting you, right? God is finishing it. And notice that nowhere in that whole equation is you or me, right? I pray that God will continue to finish the good work that God began in you until the day when Christ Jesus returns, right? So, so it's God's work because God started it and God takes responsibility for finishing it, okay? So once, that's why I say when you try to take that over, right? When your inner critic is the one that says, I got this and to get, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm going to harangue you and harass you and belittle you until you finally get it right, what you're actually doing there is taking the work away from God and it's God's work in the first place. God is the one who began the work of faith in you. And God is the one who takes full responsibility for perfecting it, for finishing it. Because perfection is not a state that we exist in, right? It's a process. It's a path that we're on. And so ones, if you can learn to relax your death grip on perfection, to open up what, what you will discover... is that God is doing something profound and beautiful and true within you. Uh, the last place I want us to go is to John chapter 3. And this is where we're moving into our, our reflection time and our response time here. Um, but, but in John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a, a religious man named Nicodemus. And I don't know whether Nicodemus was an Enneagram one or not. We just don't have enough information about him to know, and that's fine. It actually doesn't matter. Um, but I actually think that Jesus' words to Nicodemus are profoundly challenging uh, to most people, obviously, but I think particularly maybe to Enneagram ones, uh, because he warns Nicodemus that that this, this thing that he is doing, right, this, this way that he is bringing the kingdom of God into the world, the way he is opening up the space that we call religion uh, and, and bringing people into this, this kingdom of God that he is a part of is unpredictable and wild and in, in no way uh, regimented and regulated. And that, mm, sorry ones, right, that just drives you crazy because you're like you live in a world of rules, and Jesus is, I'm just warning you here, it's going to hurt, right? Jesus is saying like, yeah, yeah, sorry, there's just not a rule for this, right? You can't like write a textbook for it. There's not a manual for it, okay? So, so here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 5 through 8. He says, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. And just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Right? There he says it. Uh, and, and this is, uh, it's less fun in English. In Greek, it's fun because the word spirit and, and wind are the same word. In English, we have two different words. That's why I said it's less fun, right? But in, in Greek, you're like, oh, Jesus is doing this fun little play on words thing there, right? And in English, we just have to imagine how fun that is, right? Oh, it's, yeah, okay, we're pretending. It's fun. Um, Jesus is saying, this thing that I am doing, Nicodemus, it's not something that can be captured or contained, right? It's not something that follows rules or a playbook. And once again, I know that drives you nuts. 
Because ones in particular tend to reduce religion to that list of moral instructions, right? Ones are already sort of naturally predisposed to rules, and so ones really like a religion that is rules, lists of rules, where we can follow them and know that God loves us and that we're going to get in and everything's going to be okay, and then we can judge the people that aren't and condemn them and, you know. But Jesus warns Nicodemus, and by extension us, that his religion doesn't work that way right? That what he is doing is this wide open new thing. And it's not, it's not the wild west where anything goes and it's loosey-goosey and you just kind of do what you want. It's, it's, it's led by the spirit. It's just that the spirit cannot be contained by what we think or want or imagine. The spirit is always ahead and beyond and around and inside out and upside down. And whatever we, whenever we think we've got a handle on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has gone beyond us and is doing something new. And if we try to reduce the Holy Spirit to a list of moral instructions, we will miss what the Spirit is doing every single time. But if we can let go of that desire to be in control and instead respond in faith, in trust, right? Which is, which is saying, I'm not in control, but I trust that the one who is is good. Right? That's faith. I'm not in control, but I trust that God knows what God is doing. And so I can respond whether or not I know what's happening, whether or not I have the full picture, whether or not I understand who all these people are, whether or not I have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, right? I can respond knowing that someone else is in charge and that someone is good. We can respond like that. That is when we can find something truly beautiful. And so in that in that spirit, I want to invite us to the communion table. Because it's at this table that, again, we find something good and beautiful and true. And it breaks all the, it breaks all the rules, right? If, if you're going to make a list of the ways God was going to save the world, you wouldn't say, like, cook a, cook a little meal. Right? And yet this is exactly what Jesus does. The night before he's killed, he prepares a meal and he shares it with his disciples. And they didn't understand it then, which is good news because it means we don't have to fully understand it now. We just have to respond in faith. We just have to come, as Jesus says, come hungry and thirsty. You don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion with us. If you're just someone who's willing to respond in faith, knowing that the one who is in charge, who does know what's going on, is good, then you're welcome to come to the table today. Before we, before we receive communion together, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine. Uh, I'm going to ask us a set of questions and give you a chance to reflect and pray through them. And I'm going to pray for all of us together. And we're going to receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. Think about the week that's behind us, right? Has there been a, a time in the last week that I've criticized myself even silently? Times that I have, um, again, taken over the role of the Holy Spirit in in watching over me?
Now, when in the last week have, have I criticized others? Again, even silently. think about the week that is ahead of us. Uh, when in the next week might I be tempted to be critical? Again, either, either towards myself or towards others. Are there particular relationships or spaces where I'm going to be tempted to be critical? Finally, how can I let go of my inner critic and listen to the Holy Spirit this week? Pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning that we might uh, attend more closely to those among us that uh, are that we call Enneagram ones, those who, who look like Isabella, who by outward appearances seem so perfect and put together and yet often suffer under the weight of this massive internal critic. And as we have gotten to know them better, you have helped us see the truth about all of us, which is that you created us and you love us and you call us to trust in you, not to take on the work ourselves of being perfect, but in trusting you to finish the good work that you started in us through your son, Jesus. And so in response to that, we come to your table this morning and we offer ourselves. In return, we receive these elements and we pray that they would be a spiritual food for us. That in sharing this meal together, we might hear collectively the voice of your Holy Spirit calling us onward. Thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you for enabling us to worship together and to share this table together. And we pray these things and we approach your table now in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he broke bread and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. And when the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus's death until he returns. Uh, would you stand with me for one final song? Now, as we're leaving, I wanted to give you a couple of uh, practical ways, uh, if you're a one, that you can grow. And then if you're not a one, but you love a one, how you can uh, to, uh, to continue to, to love those ones well. So if you're a one, uh, two things. First of all, my, uh, one of my good friends who's a one said that the, the best thing that ever helped her was at the end of a day, so just pick a day this week. I don't care which one. It could be today. It could be Wednesday. It could be Saturday. I don't care, right? Any day. Uh, and at the end of the day, do, do a, a reflection and examine back through the day at the number of times that you criticize yourself. 
She said when she did this, it absolutely staggered her at the number of self-critical thoughts that she had, that that inner critic were just firing off at her. And it really opened her eyes to uh, her need to be changed and transformed. Okay. Uh, now, another thing, and this is something that, uh, that Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile, who wrote the Road Back to You book that we've been using uh, for the Enneagram part of this, uh, something they recommend, and this is going to sound real dumb, but it's actually the fact that it's dumb that makes it work. Okay? Give your inner critic a terrible, embarrassing, silly name, like Mr. Grumps or Grumpy McGrumper Pants or something. Right? The sillier, the stupider, the better. Because okay? the whole goal is to belittle your inner critic. And then when you, when you catch them firing off, you just say, Mr. Grumps, I appreciate your input. I'm not a little kid anymore, and I don't need you. So you're dismissed. Okay? Again, I know that sounds silly, but silly is the point, right? Humor defangs the inner critic. Okay? And it's a way to help you learn to shut that voice off so that you can be open to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because so often, for ones, that can't happen, right? The, the inner critic is so loud and so powerful that you can't hear what God is saying to you in that still, small voice through which God speaks. So that's a really, uh, again, it's really silly, but silly on purpose way to, to learn to silence that inner critic. Now, for those of us who are not ones, but who love ones, again, a couple of pieces of advice, real practical advice. Uh, one of the best things that helped me understand my one friend's uh, is that thing about the inner critic, right? That insight that no matter how judgmental or harsh a one comes across, remember that they reserve their harshest criticisms for themselves. Okay, so again, particularly an unhealthy one is going to be a micromanager, is going to be berating, is going to be cruel, and it can be difficult to love a person like that, right? Especially if like you don't have to, if not like in your family or your church or something, like they're like, they're like an employee or employer, what can be helpful to remember about them is no matter how harsh or judgmental they're being towards you, uh, they're worse on themselves. They're crueler, they're harsher to themselves. Um, that actually helped me have a tremendous amount of empathy for the ones in my life, particularly the less healthy ones. Uh, the other thing is that uh, ones, even though they are perfectionists, even though they know that they do a good job because they work really hard at doing a good job, they still appreciate verbal praise. So again, a way that you can tangibly love a one in your life is by going out of your way to acknowledge the things that they do well and give honest praise, right? I'm not saying to you know lie to them or, or make stuff up because ones will see through that, right? But just give them honest praise. Just go out of your way to that. That communicates love to the ones in your life in a really practical way. Okay. Uh, so those are some tangible ways, if you are a one, to move towards spiritual growth, to listen to the Holy Spirit better. And if you are not a one, but you love ones, to love them well. All right? If you'll stand with me, I'd like to dismiss us with a blessing. Uh, next week, we're talking about the Enneagram 2s. They're the helpers. Uh, this is the mom, Julieta, who makes... Uh, Heals people with food, which is a glorious magical power to have, right? I'm real jealous of that one. Um, but looking forward to that. Until then, Catalyst, I want to send you with this blessing, and I'm going to repeat the words of Paul to the church in, in Philippi. Um, would you go knowing that the God who began a good work in you is the same God who has taken charge of the responsibility to complete that work, and God will continue that until the day that Christ Jesus returns? So walk in that confidence. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll see you next week.